Hi, I'm Casey. And I'm Katie. And I'm John. Uh, did you guys do your homework this week? What was our homework? You were supposed to watch Paddington. Oh, uh, I didn't watch Paddington. Uh, you need to. As soon as this is over, we're going to hit stop on the record button. Is it on Netflix? It's on Netflix. Okay, we can watch it tonight. And it is completely relative to our topic today and last week on immigration, on refugees. Y'all need to watch it. Um, I'm not going to ask our guest yet if she's watched it. I'm going to save that until we bring her on. <laughs> so pe- pencil that away. Um, but y'all, listener... You can you can stop listening to this podcast right now. I'm fine with it. Go watch Paddington Bear because it's just such a precious name. Paddington, and it really changed my life. Okay, so you're listening to the tenth episode of the Turning Tables podcast. We did not get a cupcake, but we do have puppy chow. Not like dog food, but like you know, some people call it muddy buddies. Some people call it puppy chow. I call it puppy chow. I've never heard muddy buddy. What really? I haven't either. Nuh-uh. By some people, you mean one person. No, That's lots it. of people call it Muddy Buddies. They market it as. That's the, they actually sell it as Muddy Buddies. Muddy Chex buddies? Mix sells exactly. it as Muddy Buddies. You could buy bags, but now the homemade is much better mm-hmm. than the Muddy Buddies. Well, I'm a believer in whatever I'm eating right now. Yes, so we do have puppy chow to celebrate. So um, if you are listening to this 10th episode, we just want to say thank you for tuning in. And um, thanks for all the reviews or the lack thereof. No, thank you. <laughs> so that. if you have not rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast, please do so. You can pause. You can watch Paddington and write your review at the same time. <laughs> it probably won't take you that long It'll to go. write your review. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. if you're right, if you're really excited about this podcast, you yeah. might leave us a really long review. Five star, please. And thank you. And if you have not um, followed us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, please do so at turning pod. Make sure you share this episode with a friend. I mean, if you like it, if you don't like it, then you don't have to share it with a friend, but hopefully you enjoy it. And uh, we're just happy that you're here. So today we are continuing our conversation on immigration. Um, Thank you so much to all of the listeners who gave us great feedback after our conversation last week with Carlos Noah. And if you have not listened to that yet, please do so. Um, We're really proud of that conversation and, and really looking forward to continuing that conversation today. Um, so we have a special guest with so us, Alder Woman, so Annie Rice. Hey, Annie. Hello. So Thanks gl- for having me. So glad you're on the show. This is great. So Annie and John went to college together. We did. That was our connection. Mm-hmm. We did. And we kind of talked about uh, before the show, we, we, did, we didn't have a lot of intersection as far as classes, but we did have friends, uh, friend circle intersections. Yes. That's what she thinks. She thought you were weird. Well, probably. Most people <laughs> did. Um, but, you know. We were all weird in our <laughs> own ways. That's why Greenville attracts. Yeah. I mean, you're in the middle of cornfields. We're all weird. We're all just waiting to be murdered. That's like a a dark turn. I recorded some music at Greenville. Great. In the little studio place there. Mm -hmm. You and Jars of Clave, man. That's amazing. I'm basically Jars of Clave. You basically are. That's what I heard. Basically. Wow. So anyway, let's go ahead and have our guest introduce herself. Annie, you can tell us as much or as little as you want. Um, Yeah. Take it away. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for having me again. um, I am Annie Rice. I did go to Greenville, then college, now Greenville University. Um, I, let's see, I grew up outside of Springfield, Illinois, a little farm town, actually in between a little farm town in Springfield and Illinois. So it was Pleasant Plains and or Farmingdale, Illinois. I have a friend from 
Armington, Illinois. Armington. That's a it new kind of sounds like Farmington. Yeah. That's <laughs> a, anyway. Go never ahead. heard of that one. <laughs> that's okay. You wouldn't have heard of um was it yeah, Farmingdale um and then yeah, Farmington is another one. Anyway, I uh, obviously went to Greenville College. Uh, my sister was there, and so ended up there for undergrad and finished with an urban and cross-cultural ministry degree, and then went back home to Springfield and went to work at a daycare for a little bit and then got hired back on at Greenville. So funny, when you get a ministry degree, there's just not much you can do with it. You're like, I'm going to get my undergrad in ministry. <laughs> yeah. Well. You know, I really I really wanted to study abroad. That was yeah. it. It was there yeah. was a there was a semester out of college experience oh, cool. that you had to do as a part of it and it used to be you would either go on a semester to Chicago or a semester to St. Louis and I thought that was boring and so Very I boring. I went to Uganda instead. Oh, much cooler. <laughs> it was it was great. Um but I, I I did figure out there that I did not want to use my ministry degree, but I wanted to try to do something else, which is a bad thing to realize the spring semester of your junior year. Um, (laughs) But I, you know, my, my dad had said I needed an ESL, you know, ESL was what I was going to do also that I, I, so I have a certificate in that and which I also have never used. Um, But, you know, went back and, and then I applied back at Greenville to be an admissions counselor. So I was there uh, for about a year and a half, and I ended up working as the uh, international student admissions counselor. Um, so I got certified to be in that role and to help people come in. And then I had a couple of students who really uh, pushed their boundaries as far as their visas went. And I had mm-hmm. to start calling the consulate and say, hey, you really need to let this student come back. We need we need them here. And um, I was so frustrated with the student for, you know, violating what their visa terms were and getting themselves into this predicament. Um, when I had told them for sure, you uh, do not need to go back home and renew your visa. We, you know, um, he went home anyway, and then we got into trouble. So, but I, I loved it. I loved the the sort of nitty gritty talking to these folks to try to make sure that the student could still be in the U.S. and um, mm. and so I, I started looking at you know what I was going to do as far as grad school if I was going to do that or work somewhere else and um, I actually found international justice mission was that was something that my mom had said hey you know they've we've watched some things at church about this and it mm-hmm. seems like a really good organization um, but they only take you if you. Uh, had a law degree or a master's in social work, mm. neither of which I had. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a longtime family friend had told me, like, your your bleeding heart is great, but you don't have anything to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe go pick up some skills. And uh, he, he said, please don't, you know, he was from Ghana and he said, please don't go to Ghana if you don't have anything to offer because you're just taking up space then. Wow. Um, and that was really helpful. Um so I had started looking at this and international justice mission was out there and I thought I really liked their model of empowering the people who are in the country to do the work themselves and not sort of white savior it and, yeah. you know, Im- impose our own values mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, Oh, I'll do an MSW because it sounded a whole lot easier than a law <laughs> degree. And, uh, my mom said, Oh, you're smart. Go to law school. <laughs> Ah, thanks, mom. <laughs> thanks, mom. Uh, thanks for those student loans, mom. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, maybe as a as a lawyer, I've got more potential to pay it off than an MSW. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. So I went to the University of Cincinnati for law school. Um, I chose them. They had an international human rights program that was cool, and cool. I um, 
got to actually clerk for a judge in Botswana uh, for a summer. And then um, I actually got hired on at an immigration law firm my second year. So my second year and my third year, I was in class and also working. So Mm -hmm. not doing the traditional clinics and moot courts and law reviews and things like that, but I was working Mm -hmm. and uh, got to really know that whole side of things and and get invested in that. And so then when I graduated, I I came back to St. Louis. Um, I said, it's closer to family and the baseball's better than Cincinnati. (laughs) So uh, shout out Cardinals there. Um, And and then I I tried to get started here doing immigration law. And it was really difficult to sort of find a way in. And I found the MICA project is the Migrant and Immigrant Community Action Project. And I started volunteering for them because I just passed the bar. I was waiting on my um, waiting on that to all kick in. And and then the law firm in Cincinnati set me up to try to run my own gig here. And I made about $12,000 that first year. And that's not really livable. So (laughs) even with our affordable rent. Um, was not quite livable. And um, so then I've I've kind of worked in a couple of other arenas like that until I I got hired on at um, Kazali Worsh to be an immigration attorney there. So so there's that. And then there's the whole other political side where I'm also an alderman in the city of St. Louis, but that's another hour and a half long conversation. Should we call you alderwoman or alderman? It's right? If you want it, you older woman, care. we do that. I, I like that it sets it apart to say older woman because yeah. for the first time in St. Louis history, we finally have 12 or um, how many of us are there? 14. There's 14 <laughs> awesome. women and 14 men for the first time ever. Wow. So it's kind of nice to do that. But I, I did hear alder creature oh. and that's a little more, you know, non-gender specific. So <laughs> I have, it kind of sounds like a lizard though. A it little does. bit, a little bit, you know, and if, if you want to think of your government like that, um, well, but yeah. yeah. So. so what is your day to day? Like what is the um, duty or the job of an alderman, alder woman? Sure. So uh, it's kind of undefined. Okay. Um, we are the legislative body for the city of St. Louis. So we are tasked with writing the ordinances and revising those and um, and creating good policy and also guiding um, tax incentives and development and um, public health. I mean, all of, all of those areas sort of a legislative body would do. Um, and then we're also, we have taken on over the years, all of the constituent services roles as well. So mm. um, there is an entire body of the city government that's set up to handle those things. So your, you know, your trash isn't getting picked up or your, the trees need trimmed or the sidewalk is broken. And um, those types of things are supposed to go to the Citizen Service Bureau, but generally people just call their aldermen. So uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know negotiate or navigating between those different city offices mm-hmm. and and connecting those things. But it is also a part time job. Okay. Quotes, air quotes. You can't <laughs> you can't see my quotes. My it's quote part time job. Part-time. Yes, it's the part time job you're always on call for. Yeah. Correct, yeah. correct. When you are coming home late at night and all of a sudden all the power's out on half of your blocks and you have to oh. figure out what's going on there, or there's a water main that broke and no one is there yet and things like that. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. And in being a Tower Grove area, there's a lot of things that can happen. I'm sure you get on call on call a lot for. Yeah. Um. I mean, we didn't live quite in Tower Grove. We lived just a little south of there, but I know power outages and things like that happened on the, on the frequent. So sure. Yeah, sure. We're, keeps you busy. A, we're an older city with some aging infrastructure mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah, that kind of stuff happens. <laughs> so I have a question before we dive into the topic of immigration, kind of related, kind of not related, but before we dive into that, you know, we are all people who grew up in the church, people of faith. Um, and I think that there's maybe a, a miscon, a common misconception that 
you know, if the church was just doing what it should be doing, then, you know, really there's no reason for us to get involved in politics or vote. Um, you know, the, the law doesn't really matter because if the church is just really doing what it's called to do, then it doesn't, we don't really need to get involved politically. Um, and there's a Martin Luther King Jr. quote that I love. He says, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. So I would just love to hear maybe what your thoughts are on that. Why is it important for people of faith to be involved in politics and to vote. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, like I said, I grew up in central Illinois to a pretty conservative family. Mm-hmm. Um, they would not identify themselves as Republican um, because they, they vote based on the candidates. Um, Good. But my, um, my father was involved in the Illinois state legislature in a support role in a tech role, wow. but um, was connected there and, and really just didn't, we, we weren't raised talking about politics, but we were, inform sort of as we went on, um, you know, the conversations would have been around us saying, well, our votes don't really count mm-hmm. because we were in Illinois. And if you were going to vote Republican, well, it didn't really matter in the governor's race or the statewide races, that kind of thing. Cause it's a democratic stronghold of Chicago kind of took over everything. Um, and so I didn't really, I didn't really engage with politics until I went to Uganda and I was there during a presidential election. And I mean, so it was a, it's a multi-party system and in Uganda, so this was 2006, there was it, the election was the closest any candidate has ever come to unseating the current president who's been there since 1986. Wow. Um, and, but the, the rallies were violent. I mean, there was, there was violent, there was state violence. There was, um, party against party violence. And my friends that showed, you know, their ink stained fingers and who they voted for, they all had hand signals to go with a candidate that they voted for. Um, was actually, they were actually taking big risks by showing who they voted for because you could be persecuted or your family could lose a job or things like that just for who you voted for. And I started to see just sort of how life and death politics could be. Um, and so when I came back home, I had a bit of an awakening as far as, you know, what's going on here. So I think it, it was easy for me in a, in a firmly middle-class family that, you know, struggled when we were coming up. But then once my dad had a good salary, then we were pretty secure financially. Um, we didn't have a problem owning property. We, they had jobs, you know, we were taken care of. So with that privilege, there was a little bit of insulation from the day-to-day of Mm -hmm. what, how politics can affect you. So once I finally saw that, right, then, um, and we didn't live in a city. So we, you know, we didn't have municipal elections or things like that. Um, and so once I started to see that, then I, you start paying attention to, oh, how does this actually affect me? Um, so I, I think particularly for people who have strong feelings about, you know, how they think that the American experiment should work, um, even if you don't fully agree with a candidate, getting involved and even asking those questions is really important. I love getting feedback from people about what's in front of the board or what they, what direction they would like our city to take, things like that. Um, and if you're, if you're not engaged in that conversation, well, then it's happening without you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- I think it's important to be involved in that. I don't think that it's a it and religion or it and Christianity are opposed. I think they absolutely go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, I, I was raised around folks that said, you know, we're going to take care of the people around us. And we were a part of a tight church community that all my clothes were hand-me-downs from the, yeah. you know, other <laughs> yeah, families yeah, yeah. around. And, you know, we, different people lived with us in our basement because, you know, they were building a house or, you know, we're going through a family transition and needed somewhere to stay. So we really took care of each other, but um, we had the ability to do that exactly. and, and not everybody does. And so mm. for me, I would rather people participate 
um, in the government to the fullest extent that they can so that everybody has the equal access to what's going on. Because you can't mandate that people are a part of a church community or a mm-hmm. part of a faith community that's going to financially take care of each other. But tax money should be spread evenly and those services should be. And so there's actually really strong debate in philanthropy right now. So taking it out of religion, but just philanthropy in general, Mm -hmm. is it better for billionaires to be donating back to us or should billionaires be paying a fair share of taxes and then the government can provide in a way that the billionaires can't in in such Mm -hmm. a mass scale? So I think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So that is a topic I absolutely want to get back to at some point, maybe not on this episode. Um, But... So with all of your experience in the immigration field across the board, can you kind of give us just a massively oversimplified rundown <laughs> of what it's like for the the average person you're dealing with coming through the immigration system? Sure. So most of the people I work with now are people who are seeking green cards or citizenship. So your vast majority of um, folks who are becoming citizens at this point, right? So... Um, I work with a lot of people who were students here in the U.S. and then met and married someone while they were here, met a U.S. citizen, um, and then have gotten married. And this is is one way to to open the door to U.S. immigration. It is not a guarantee. Just marrying a U.S. citizen does not guarantee you citizenship or a green card. Um, but you know, someone who so there, there's sort of two different tracks. There's a temporary person or a permanent resident. Um, and so just talking about permanent residents, uh, they have to apply for a green card. They have to have a, a valid reason. So whether that be a relationship to a U.S. citizen, a, a parent, a spouse, a child, um, or um, they have a, a permanent business opportunity, a visa there, that there are very few of those um, that actually lead towards permanent residence. Most business and employment things are temporary, Mm -hmm. as well as student visas are also temporary. They do not lead automatically towards permanent residence. Um, So someone has to have a relationship. They have to, U.S. citizen or company has to apply for them, and then they have to process their own green card. Um, And then at that point, there's a three or five year waiting period that they have to wait before they can apply to even become a citizen. Um, Um, But there's interviews, there's background checks, there's um, financial requirements at this point. They have to have a financial sponsorship and ability to show that they're not going to become a public charge. And this is something that's... Yeah, I saw that those are potentially going up in very near future. Yeah. So the Trump administration is interpreting the public charge rules. This is something that has existed in our immigration law forever, is that um, if you're coming to the U.S., you have to show that you can sort of stand on your own two feet or that someone is taking responsibility for you. Um, But they are more heavily scrutinizing people coming in than they ever have before. And they're trying to massively extend the requirements to show that the U.S. citizen can provide for them. So Mm -hmm. they're even going as far as saying the immigrant has to show that they will be able to get uh, health insurance within three or six months of coming into the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not always the possibility. And, and those also apply to some of the other visitors as well. Um, so they're, they're really just ramping this up. And right now, if you're a sponsor of a U.S. or a, a, someone who's coming for permanent residence, you sign a legally binding contract with the U.S. government that if they ever take public benefits, the government can come back to you for reimbursement for them. Mm. So this already exists. All of these things already exist. The the um, backup for this is already there for them for the government to come back to somebody and say, 
hey, you didn't meet our standard. We actually need you to pay that money back. So not costing the taxpayers anything from this. Um, but they're not very good at re- going after those folks and, and using that process that they have lined out for them. So they're trying to front end block people from even coming in. Mm. Um, and part of that is I, they're trying to say that we're using European merit-based immigration now, that um, we want people who are the best and the brightest, and we don't want people to be able to bring their families with them. So when they, when the Trump administration says chain migration, those are families we are talking about. That's wow. um, a parent bringing their child or a parent bringing their spouse, and then the spouse maybe has a parent that they also bring. And I mean, think about moving to a foreign country for for what is ostensibly the rest of your life. You Mm -hmm. want to move somewhere and invest your time and your energy and your tax dollars. You might buy property, but if you can't bring your family, well, then all you're going to be doing is sending all of that money back Mm -hmm. to your family that is in this other country. And you're not going to spend it here in the U.S. where we want you to spend your money. Um, So it's actually sort of counterintuitive towards what they say their goals are. Their unspoken goals are very, you know, the thing they won't say out loud as often, but are saying more out loud now is it's white supremacist. Mm -hmm. It's um, trying to prevent people who are coming from, quote unquote, poorer countries from coming in or people who aren't educated in universities that we recognize in degrees that we recognize that kind of thing. They're trying to stifle immigration from all of those points saying, well, this is just a part of the legal process and you have to meet it um, when it is far more extensive than anything they've ever done before. So it sounds like it's it's just much more of a process to legally immigrate here than lots of people would like to believe. Yes, it's so huge. So what would your response be to someone who says, well, Annie, why can't they just come here legally? Like, why can't they yeah. just immigrate legally? What would your response be to that person? Sure. It's, it's incredibly difficult. They... Um, you know, they say that you can process these forms without an attorney, but um, the immigration code is second in complication to the tax code. And I don't know how many folks uh, who have a complicated family situation just actually line by line write out their own taxes, right? But that's what these forms are designed to do is you have to fill them out yourself. Um, and the cost is is significant um, for a, a permanent resident card at this point, you're already talking around $1,700 for that whole process, whether you're outside the U.S. or you're inside the U.S. and processing towards that. And the the administration is also drastically going to increase those fees come January. Um, and, and even to become a citizen, it's about $630 right now. They're talking about $1,500 going forward to become a U.S. citizen. Which is a lot of money to a lot of people. It is. It is. And, you know, there, there are plenty of people that I work with that have great jobs. They have uh, really, they have higher income than I do, right? Um, but they, um, it, it doesn't make it any easier. Um, and having to have documents showing, you know, all of your, your birth information, your last five years of residence history. And um, if you're processing overseas, you have to have a criminal background check from any country you've lived in in the last 10 years. It's, I mean, these are massive amounts of documents that you have to go through and then wait in line at a consulate if you're overseas. Um, for a consular officer who may not give you the time of day before you come in um, or before they decide whether or not you can come in. Um, And then you're given a very short window to uproot your life and become a permanent resident in the United States. Um, So, and for some people that line just doesn't exist. Um, There are plenty of people who want to come to the U.S. for all number of reasons, but 
there, a pathway doesn't exist or someone who has come to the U.S. on a visitor visa of some kind and has overstayed. And that's actually the majority of people who are here undocumented are people who came into the U.S. with a valid immigration status, but either they fell out of status or didn't have a, a valid reason to stay on permanently. Um, but they're still here and they've started lives here. They're um, having families, they're working in jobs, they're buying property, they're paying taxes, they're paying billions of dollars in taxes every year um, and contributing back, but they don't, there, there is no line for some of those or Mexico, the Philippines or um, China, you're talking, a, a parent would have had to apply for an adult child back in 1993 for that visa to be available right now. Wow. So some of these things, the, the line, there is a line, quote unquote, for some of these, very few of these, but you had to have gotten in it 20 years ago <laughs> or I mean, 1990s. Longer than 20 years ago? No, we're about 30 years ago. Yeah. 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 I was born so. in 91 Kitty's and I'm 28. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah. But that's, that is wild. I mean, it's, it just, it's, it's mind boggling how, I mean, it seems impossible. Like I, I just, you know, in my context, we're so privileged here sitting here recording a podcast and like, <laughs> just like putting my, try, attempting to put myself in those shoes. Um, I can't do it. I can't possibly do it. And like, it just, it just seems like an impossible thing to, to accomplish. I don't know. It is. And, and I think the, the main thing to try to wrap your head around is that it is so much more complicated than it looks, mm-hmm. right? That the, the media kind of on every side will try to oversimplify the story to be able to, to tell the story. Because, I mean, I, I can't get out my immigration Bible that's you know six inches thick to explain every situation of every person coming in. Yeah. But everybody's situation is unique. Everybody's um, complications are unique. And to to not let everything be broad category categorized as the same, I think is, is a good way to sort of step a foot into it without getting too overwhelmed. So you kind of touched on this already, but how have you seen the, how have you seen immigration change since Trump was elected? Law, I'm sure that's a long answer. It's hard, you know, and I, I will say I was elected as a Democrat. I, I, um, I don't say that I identify as a Democrat because it feels like a, a weird identity yeah. thing yeah. for yeah. me as someone yeah. who grew up in the church. Uh, yeah. Claiming that as an identity is a difficult thing for me, but yeah. I, I do tend that direction and um, I'm a member of the party at this point. But um, Obama was not great on immigration either. Mm-hmm. Um, there were the, some of the more drastic immigration measures have taken place under Democratic presidents. Um, President Clinton signed a bill back in 1996 that is one of the reasons that we have so much um, criminal immigration enforcement um, that we didn't have before 1996. Um, and Obama also had one of a very wide-ranging immigration enforcement um, operation that basically he he created this whole system that now the Trump administration is taking more advantage of. So taking it far beyond what the Obama administration had ever set it up to be. But they were still deporting people with very minor infractions. So running a stop sign or driving without a driver's license, those types of things could get someone deported after they'd been here for 20 years and had a whole family here, even under that administration. This administration is changing the rules for people coming in, not just trying to kick everybody out. Um, And Obama wasn't trying to kick everybody out. I don't want to, you know, make it that far, but, um, we do have, I think it was 11 million undocumented people in the United States, and that's a lot. And so 
previous administration was trying to sort of get a handle on that. This administration is saying we're shutting the doors, right? It's build the wall. It's um, returning asylum seekers back to Mexico, saying that they can't even seek asylum here in the U.S. They have to wait in Mexico where they're getting kidnapped and raped and murdered uh, while they're waiting. Um, and um, changing changing music requirements, increasing the fees, um, all of that stuff is designed to, it's the invisible wall. Um, so you've got the physical wall that he wants to build um, mm-hmm. when people aren't generally crossing, just crossing over a desert right now, which is an incredibly dangerous thing to do, a deadly thing to do in the first place. But um, building a physical wall and then all of these regulations, all of these changes um, are designed to keep people from even applying. And we're seeing it at universities. Uh, We're seeing it with students at this point. Um, Who would want to come and start their life in such anti-immigrant rhetoric right now? Um, Especially if you can't guarantee that you're going to have a job afterwards or what that's going to lead to. We're seeing it um, in businesses. We have hiring shortages all over the country. um, And because we're, we're turning back people who are more than qualified for these positions, but Americans aren't filling those positions either. And so we're, our, our economy is going to be significantly impacted by this type of thing. Um, immigrants start businesses at three times the national average yeah, as well. And, so true. and they employ people from there. So they're, um, as a whole, it's a, it's a really entrepreneurial group. They also have children at a, at a higher rate and, um, college-educated, middle-class Americans are having children at a lower rate. Um, But that's contributing to their fear of the quote-unquote browning of America. Mm. Um, And people are worried about that. So they're trying to restrict immigration because, quote, that's not who we are when it very much is who we are, Mm -hmm. right? We have always been a country of people who weren't from here because we, you know, did the whole genocide Mm -hmm. thing against the people who were here. Correct. So, yeah. I remember growing up and it being close to the time of 9-11 and there was a lot of fear around the Muslim community and seeing a video, I don't know if my dad had seen this on something, but seeing a video about how, you know, they, they're, they have such a high value of lots of children and, oh, they're going to come here and take over. Mm-hmm. And now America is going to become a Muslim country. Mm-hmm. It just seems so silly mm-hmm. now yeah. to even, to even say that that was a thought. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, we've, and we've had waves of immigration of people from different countries and waves of fear of those people mm-hmm. as they've come too. And um, that's part of the history of America also is I mean, we used to have quotas on countries and they were only, they were skewed towards white European countries. And so we valued those immigrants higher than we did anybody else. And, um, and then there was fear of, there was fear of Jews. There was fear of Irish people. There was fear of Polish people, you know, and just sort of every cycle, um, there's been fear that that group is going to somehow take over. Mm -hmm. Um, and it has not panned out, right. Except (laughs) for our founding sin of coming in and taking (laughs) over. Right. But we don't want them to do what we did. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I think the craziest thing about all of it is that if you like look at it through like an economic lens at all, it immediately like becomes nonsensical. Um, I think of like the, the founder of snap deal, which is Amazon's largest single competitor at this point, Indian company. Uh, the founder came to the U S went to a U.S. college was denied, um, a visa to work for Microsoft, mm. went back home to India and founded a billion dollar company wow. because we wouldn't let him work mm. here. Wow. Yep. Wow. And how many cases are that are there of, we sent people home that we had already educated in our, yep. our system and our values. 
and then we lose all of the productivity that we've gotten from them. It just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Mm. And an interesting point on that too is that so on on our southern border, um, there were a lot of people from Mexico who lived in Mexico, had families in Mexico, would come into the U.S. and would work, and then would go back home, and they would they would spend their money here, but they would also spend their money back home, and they were sort of free travel with you know documented travel across the border. But then we started cracking down on border enforcement, and we actually made the undocumented problem worse because people couldn't go back home now. So then they had to you know work to figure out how to get their families to come with them. And we lost that economic exchange on the border because Americans used to go into Mexico to work as well and mm-hmm. come back and yeah. forth. And so yeah. the more we the more we do enforcement, the more we prevent people from being a part of our country, whether economically or just raising a family, the more we hurt ourselves as well, because this, not all these countries want us either. Right. So, you know, it's sort of if we raise these walls, who's going to raise walls against us? And is that really the world we want to live in? So we've been talking um, more on a, on a national level um, with the discussion so far. I want to kind of bring it in a little bit more to the St. Louis level, lo- local level. And if you're not, if you're a listener and you're not from St. Louis or don't live in the St. Louis area, um, totally cool and, and definitely don't turn this off. We just kind of want to talk on the on the local level, um, kind of what's happening and um, what are we seeing, how can we be involved, et cetera, et cetera. And I was I was before this episode, I was doing some research on St. Louis specifically, um, and I was actually really shocked and um, interested to read this. It said that um, the new census data shows that St. Louis is ranked third for fastest growing uh, foreign uh, population. Uh, We've actually been on the rise since 2014. And that one of the, one of the gentlemen on this article I read, um, it was actually a St. STL Today article. He said, we're getting more than just refugees. We're we're getting highly educated immigrants with higher human capital who are more likely to start a business. Um, And we we talked on it a little bit on a national level, but I know like St. Louis specifically, there's a lot of of businesses, um, a lot in the South City area, businesses that are owned by um, immigrants, people that, have, that are foreign born. Um, on a local level, are you are you working with some of these businesses or like what are some stories you have from work you've done on the local level here in St. Louis? Yeah. So St. Louis has, well, we are a refugee resettlement city and that's why that article specifically re- Reference refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means we're contracted with the State Department that when there are refugees that are processed to come to the United States by the UN High Commission for Refugees, then they get placed in one of these refugee resettlement cities. Um, so that's um, where the major influx of Bosnian people came in, um, people from Vietnam, um, people from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, from the Congo right now, the Congo is actually the largest or the country that's sending the most refugees, the mm-hmm. quickest growing mm-hmm. population is coming from the Congo after Syria, I think right now too. But since the U S is blocking anyone from Muslim countries, um, we, that that's what people sort of think about St. Louis as and think about the area, especially of South grand, which mm-hmm. is part of where I represent that was completely revitalized by Vietnamese refugees mm-hmm. and refugees of, of other um, countries of origin and there are more countries represented uh, by restaurants on South Korea than are at Epcot right now. Oh my no gosh, kidding. that's um, so cool. Wow. So it's very cool. If you're looking for ethnic food, please come down to South Korea. Um, but we... Sounds so good right now. Yeah, and, and I will say, so the Bosnian population, when they came in um, during and after um, the conflict in Bosnia, they 
loved St. Louis because it was affordable to live. We were friendly, we were welcoming, and they've also revitalized parts of the city and then into the county now too. So Mm -hmm. have grown. And then as folks, more people have come into the country, then they migrate into St. Louis and kind of grow from there. Um, So there's, that's one story, right? That's, that's one version of the story is this is how immigration can really build up. Um, and people who were here 20, 30 years ago will tell very different stories about these areas of town, um, and how the population was starting to dwindle before these folks came in. Um, and very entrepreneurial, right? Starting businesses, Mm -hmm. starting restaurants and, um, and employing lots of people in their community and in the St. Louis community. So right now, um, the International Institute is the agency that works with the refugees. Um, They're having to pivot a little bit because the Trump administration has so restricted refugee admission. Um, We're down around, I think, 13,000 this year Hmm. when we had, I mean, we were over over 100,000 refugees in the last year of of the Obama administration. And um, in the time where in the time in the world right now that we have the highest population of refugees second to World War II mm-hmm. um, in the world, that, and we are restricting who we're letting in, wow. um, which will have long-term geopolitical ramifications as well. But we, um, so the International Institute is pivoting a little bit and they're working more on helping the people who are here with micro loans and things like that to get them on their feet and into creating businesses and that kind of thing. So that's one piece. The other piece um, is the Mosaic Project. So this was something that was, I believe, started out of um, the, what's it called? Um, the World Trade Center, I think is what they call it actually. And it's based out of Clayton, but they're, they were sort of established to try to help the families of people who were coming to work on these high skilled business visas. So people coming to work for our fortune 500 companies, um, in tech or in agriculture. Um, so Monsanto or any, any of our bigger companies to work with their families, to help integrate them into the city and into their communities. And they together with the international Institute, with the leadership from the St. Louis County and St. Louis city have been working to make our region more and more welcoming so that we, because we know that immigrants, do grow our cities and our region. So we're trying to do everything we can to make sure resources are accessible to people and connecting them with the the people and the communities around them to help them grow. Um, so that's part of the story of why why we are where we are. Um, and we've we so valued people coming in and helping to grow that um, it's really nice to be in a place like like this that um, does place that value on people. Um, and, you know, not, not everybody is like that, but some of it's our good old Midwestern values, right? That yep. no one's really a stranger and, um, you know, try to, try to welcome people. And I think that's, that's another connection back to communities of faith, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, most all of our, our sacred texts talk about welcoming the stranger and talk mm-hmm. about, um, you know, if someone needs clothing or someone needs food, you, pr- you help provide that, you take care of each other. And, yeah. um, and so I, I am glad that we have those values here yeah. and it's, it's nice. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I love that, um, the listener can't see this, but like the hoodie you're wearing says people first on it. And, um, it's just those, those Midwestern values. I I'd like to get one of those hoodies. Where would I, where would I get one of those? I believe this was a, a pro refugee organization that I oh. bought this from actually. Okay. So I'll look it up and we'll- yeah. People first hoodie. Yeah. But I, I think it's interesting that like, I think for a lot of people, those values are starting to come into conflict with this immigration policy, um, especially as they realize that it's not just a specific type of immigrant that's being deported. It's just a lot of immigrants. 
Yeah. You know, there are really interesting stories coming out now of small rural communities that voted very heavily for Donald Trump, but then someone in their community has gotten picked up and then deported. And they're having to deal with maybe that person had a, a spouse or children that were living in the town were a, a part of their business or a part of their church community. And all of a sudden, you know, Miguel is gone. And all Miguel might have done was drive without a driver's license because he was undocumented and couldn't get one. And people are saying, wait a minute, I, I, I liked these policies, but not with my friends, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or not with my community. And th- we didn't mean him. We meant, you know, those bad people, right? And so I, I think it's it's been a gut check for some of those communities where that's happened. Um, and also, I mean, we can't not talk about the children at the border, yes, right? We can't go there. We have to talk about what's happening, um, children being separated from their parents and the lifetime damage we are doing to them mm-hmm. um, by the trauma of that. I mean, it it changes brainwave patterns to be subjected to that kind of, of trauma. And I mean, this is, this is our federal government doing that. And I think... Um, it was it was really eye opening for some people to see that and see. Wait a minute, this is wrong. This is this is not who we are, right? To to say things like that, but then also, I mean, that was that was that's old news, right? We we've, right. we've kind of moved on from that, and and there are still families in detention. There was still there was a child that died last week mm. in detention, and he had the flu and just didn't get treatment. Um, and you know, we countries have gone through times of turmoil and in times of human atrocities before. And generally when it starts to hit the child, then people start to wake up and say, no more, we don't mess with children. Like this is like, this is effed Mm -hmm. up. Um, But we, there's so much coming at us in so many different ways. And this is so complicated to think about, well, were they quote unquote legal or is this not, or, you know, should they be here and and all of that, that that we've gotten lost, that these are children that we are required to care for. Right. And again, every, every people of faith, every book of faith, every faith tradition values children. Mm -hmm. Um, and what are we doing? Right. Um, if, if that's where we're going. So I, I think, you know, both who is your neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. Is is this person your neighbor? And what happens if your neighbor is the one that falls victim to one of these these really strict policies? And then what are we doing with the children? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And are can we ever forgive ourselves for that? I listened yeah. to a podcast a um, couple months ago about five modern day concentration camps that you're not aware of that still exist today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were some in China. I can't remember where the other ones are, mm-hmm. or, but the last one they landed on was the, you know, the camps or the, yeah. is it a camp? Detention, detention, yeah, detention centers at the, at mm-hmm. the border that mm-hmm. it's a modern day concentration camp. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's hugely controversial, right? To mm-hmm. say we're talking about Nazi Germany level, detention, but I, it's not, they're not death camps and death camps and concentration camps are very different, Mm -hmm. but a concentration camp is a concentration of a particular group of people into a facility. Right. And they're, there are some of these, I'm not sure if they've been opened yet, but they were looking to establish them on military bases (laughs) where they're restricted from civilian, um, surveillance. They're restricted from journalists to be able to come in and, and expose what's happening in there. And it's it's bad enough in the places that they're getting let into right now. Um, and what would happen if they were on a military base? Um, and some of these were used for Japanese internment before. So they're talking about reopening Japanese internment camps that we all agreed as a country was a terrible thing to do, was to move U.S. citizens into these into these 
facilities just because they were Japanese or looked Japanese in some cases, right? Um, but so it's it's hard for me to kind of pull back sometimes and try to talk about this in a calm and rational way <laughs> because I want to run around screaming saying yeah. that it's on fire and we're doing this to people. Yeah. Um, but you you have to you have to try to take chunks off and and this is where again the the political connection right this stuff matters because this is the future of our country this is right now these are children who may or may not grow up in our country um, that have permanent traumatic injury. Um, and then if they are sent back home, um, one of the reasons that we're in so much conflict in the Middle East is because of previous bad policies that created a whole generation of people who were angry at us, right? And we're creating more and more people who are angry at the United States. And what does that do to our foreign policy long-term? What does that do to our standing in the world? Where's our moral authority mm-hmm. that we claim to used to have um, and and so this is why politics matters. This is why calling your senators and representatives matters. This is why your governor matters and all the way on down, yeah. because every single one of those has mm-hmm. the ability to influence this. I think as a Christian, like we pray, we say the Lord's prayer. We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. So we ask for that. We pray for God's kingdom to come here, mm-hmm. peace, justice, mercy, but then we don't vote. Mm-hmm. How does that make There's sense? There's a disconnect there. The whole situation just reminds me of having grown up in Germany and spent a lot of time around Dachau, which was the site of a concentration camp, mm-hmm. that the line between a concentration and death camp are very um, ambiguous at best. Um, I mean, Anne Frank died of cholera. She didn't die of a gas chamber. Mm, right. um, and she's probably the most famous concentration camp victim in history. Like, mm. um, we, when we allow ourselves to enter that slippery slope of, of semantics and allowing this border camp or whatever, but it's not a concentration camp. It's, or it's not a death camp. We're, we're just paving the way for us to slowly move in that direction. And I think that's kind of what's been happening over the last few years. And I'm hoping that some of this starts to uh, wake people up to the idea that policy has consequences for real lives. It's not just a philosophical argument. Mm -hmm. It's not, I believe in conservative values. I believe in liberal values. It's, Policy affects people, even if you don't know those people, even if you're not seeing those people. And if it's not affecting you, it just means you have enough privilege to insulate yourself from that. Yes. You know, I'm thinking, okay, um, you know, if you're a listener, say, I, you know, I listened to Carlos's episode uh, last week, and that's that's starting to, you know, shape my my viewpoints on this a little bit. My my mindset is starting to shift, and and you know, maybe I'm I'm reading. Um, scripture, I'm reading things, I'm reading materials, resources, and and things that inform my faith. And that's starting to shift my mindset a little bit on this as well. And now I'm listening to Annie and I'm hearing about what's happening on a national level and on a local level. Is that kind of where we start is, you know, is voting where we start is, is going to our community and looking and saying, who's my neighbor? Is that where we start? I'm just thinking of someone who maybe hasn't even engaged in this before, but because of last episode and this episode, they're thinking, well, okay, I'm convinced I need, I need to do something. Um, where do I, where do I start? Where today, what can I do this afternoon to, to make a difference? Yeah, there's there's so many places to gather information from, and I some of those are better than others, right? Um, <laughs> but I, I would say pretty much every community of 
of any decent size will have folks who are dealing with immigrants in their midst. Um, it is it is hard. I mean, you know, all over the Midwest, we have um, small communities, especially around agriculture and things like that, that are, are dealing with people who are immigrants. Um, and every state and major city will have some sort of agency that is working with people. Um, and those are those are good places to start to just, you know, go to an event that they have. If they're um, having a fundraiser or having just a public event to talk about something, a panel discussion, that kind of thing, getting engaged there to just kind of get the lay of the land of where you are. If you don't know, if, if this is someplace that you are insulated from, um, trying to, to find that community where you are and then listen for a little bit. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of mm-hmm. um, listening first and acting way second, third, fourth, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but figure out what's actually happening in your community. And then from there say, okay, what do you need? How can I help? Um, what do I have to bring, right? That that is, that is resourceful. Is it money, right? Is it, um, calling my senators and representatives? Is it voting for a particular candidate? Um, a lot of these agencies can't tell you how to vote because they're, you know, 501c3s and, um, they're not allowed to talk about that, but is a candidate engaging on this issue in a way that you find meaningful? Um, and I, I would say those, those two things do go hand in hand that, um, for the most part, you've got one or two election days throughout a year and you've got a whole bunch of other days that you could be doing, um, other things. And so money is big, um, resources. If, uh, if you've got refugees coming in, they're always in need of clothing and household goods and things like that. Or, um, English language learning is another big one of, mm. um, People who are coming as refugees and are processing towards citizenship have to take an English language test the same as everybody else, or you're just trying to operate your life, you know, go to the doctor and, and be able to communicate. So if you speak a foreign language, um, can be really useful for those types of things or volunteering with legal advocacy communities, um, finding ways to, you know, if somebody needs a ride somewhere, it's, or just it, one of the things that I think is cool about the International Institute is they had this adopt a refugee family program. And so they would pair people up and, and create a relationship there. And they were having dinners and they um, just getting to know each other on a very human level. And that, that can change a lot. Um, but we also have churches that are looking at sanctuary. Um, and this is a, this is a particular movement that would take someone in who is about to be processed through removal proceedings wow. um, and and basically hide them in the church. So mm. if you wow. ever watched like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, right? He yeah. bangs on the door yeah. and says sanctuary. And so it is not a law that you can't enter a church or a hospital or a school to seek someone out for detention, but it is um, current policy that those are sensitive locations that ICE will not come in and conduct raids on or will not pull somebody out of. Um, And so some churches are looking at that saying, hey, we've got a room, we've got a kitchen, we've got a shower, um, and and we think that this person's life and their existence here in the U.S. is valuable. And while everything else is playing out legally with their case, we're going to house them here so that Mm -hmm. they're not in detention. Um, And there's a there's a man who's his name is Alex Garcia and he is in a church in Maplewood in St. Louis that has been there for more than a year now um, and his family is in rural Missouri and has to come up and come see him. He's got an autistic son um, and they've been trying to get ICE to say we're not going to deport you, but in the meantime he's safe safe living in a church, but he's bound by those four walls. Wow. Um, and you know it's so that that's something that 
you know, is not for everybody. Um, it has it. And I, as an attorney, I do have to say, I'm not encouraging anyone to break the law on this because it is actually illegal to harbor someone, um, someone who the government is seeking for, um, criminal or, or immigration enforcement, um, on a, on a private level, if you were to hide someone in your house, that is a punishable offense. And, um, people were, uh, criminally charged and did serve time and have to pay massive fines um, back wow. in the eighties when some of this stuff was happening before. So um, all that being said, I am not encouraging anyone to break the law, but <laughs> sure. there are other ways of looking at sanctuary yeah. as well. So how can you, I, there are a couple of churches that I've spoken with to just say, Hey, walk us through what it's, what it would be like to walk with a family, walk with an immigrant through this process. Yeah. Can we accompany people to their ice check-ins? Um, so people who've been previously ordered deported or in proceedings might have an ankle monitor and might have to check in yearly with ICE. And those are very intimidating, very scary things for people to do because they could pull that, um, pull that grant away and they could deport them on the spot. Um, but to have someone walk with you in there is, is wow. a really beautiful thing. And so there's um, the interfaith community on Latin America here in St. Louis is doing trainings for people to accompany folks to those, um, to those appointments as well. So there's so many ways to get involved, um, but it really find where is working locally, where you are um, engage with those communities. Um, and again, listen first, don't come in with what you think you will be helpful doing, but let them tell you they're they're good at what they're doing, um, and they could always use the help, um, money always, but um, anything else from there, ask first, you know, before. Yeah. Another organization that I know I've worked with a little bit is uh, Intersect Arts that does um, education for the fam or the the children of um, refugees um, and other immigrants to the U.S. They do some awesome work. So we're approaching. Another holiday, people are going to be spending time with their families, mm -hmm. many times spending time with family members who do not see eye to eye with them on this specific issue. Things come up about the impeachment. Things come up about politics and policy. And um, how do you have any advice for our listeners who are maybe sitting down at the table with relatives who want to enter into a conversation on this, how to do it gracefully, how to educate people. I don't know if you've ever experienced <laughs> yeah. that with your family. Yes. Yes, I have. Um, I have a family member who doesn't want to talk to me because I, you know, there isn't a, there is not a piece of my life that is not political at this point. Yeah. Um, I, I'm in politics as a profession. I am in immigration as a profession, both of which are very political, yeah. obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, I, you know, I, there are people that just don't want to engage with me at all. And I, I try to calmly talk it. And I think, especially for people who grew up in that, you know, try to connect back to what it, the values that you were taught growing up. And that's something that, that I've always come back to, to say, listen, you know, this is something that we talked about growing up. These are the, the things that we said that we valued. And so here's how I connect to this right now. Um, that's helpful. There are also tons of guides online. I, you know, I don't want to claim to be an expert in this at all, but there are lots of um, guides to talking to your family through these things. And, and I will say the best relationships are built on trust. Um, and the more, the more you can trust each other and try to keep cool heads, um, the more of those conversations matter and your people's minds get changed through relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is, it is incredibly difficult. And for those of us in a privileged position to be able to have these conversations where we are not physically at risk or um, 
you know, it, you're not ask, you would never ask someone who's undocumented to go and do this work for you, right? Um, if someone is under threat of someone calling ICE on them, you don't you don't have them come in um, and try to explain to your racist uncle what this is going on. Right. Um, but just trying to gracefully enter into those conversations is really important, um, and for especially for those of us who've grown up in and through those communities um, to be able to come back and speak to that mm-hmm. um, because we can do more than a talking head on Fox News can yeah. um, or Rush Limbaugh or, you know, child of Missouri, yay for him, um, who's on our, our airwaves all the time mm-hmm. also, right? Mm-hmm. We can we can do more in our communities um, to lead lead to those conversations and that heart change that we we need people to connect again as human beings. Yeah. And I think that makes a big difference in all of the areas that we're talking about with the current administration. It's, I mean, it's immigration. It's um, how do you want your government to function? Do you want people who are doing things that are against the law to continue to serve in office? Um, what are our values around that? What are our values around the environment? And why does it matter to people, to other human beings that we address the environment mm-hmm. and we actually mm-hmm. do something about this, right? So how can you connect it back down to the people around you? Because mm-hmm. most of us were, were not taught to hate each other when we grew up. We weren't taught to, you know, not treat others as we would want ourselves treated. So how can you tie those values back? I mm-hmm. think is important. Michelle Obama and her book, um, Becoming, that she just wrote and launched, I think the past within the past two mm-hmm. years, one of the last things that she says is it's hard to hate up close. And yes. that's something that I just keep continually reminding people. I talk to mm-hmm. family members who maybe disagree with me and you're right. I mean, that's how minds are changed is through conversation and through open dialogue. Um, I've seen my parents do a complete 180 politically within mm-hmm. the past 10 years probably, and come so far and become so much more empathetic. And I think that's what we have to remember is to, to operate from a place of empathy. And, and like you said, you know, these were values that we were taught growing up is to treat people the way we would want to be treated. Like imagine yourself being a family who has a child, you know, who is being threatened by deportation. Mm -hmm. How would that feel? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, and again, we keep coming back to this theme episode after episode as everyone has a story. And and like Carlos, you know, he mentioned in the last episode that a lot of times people that are coming to, to here to America, it's not their plan A. They'd rather stay where they are, yeah. um, but for whatever reason, they, they, they're being forced to come here, um, whether it be fleeing from, whatever they're fleeing from. Uh, but, you know, understanding that everyone has a context, everyone has a story, carrying empathy and, and Annie, I love what you said about, um, in conversation, um, building bridges with people, you know, as far as like the values that they're instilled, um, you know, growing up. And that's, you know, when I was in seminary, that was one thing we talked about a lot is if you, if you really want to have a conversation with someone and it be filled with grace and to have any needle, you know, movement is to build bridges, um, find, find where you have more commonality. And, um, because, you know, we're taught, I've seen like the meme like a thousand times, like at Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving's over, but at Thanksgiving, don't talk about politics and religion. And you know, there's like we three did all things. Those things. We did all those things. <laughs> and, we, and I think we did it really gracefully. Mm-hmm. Like no one got fired up. No one walked out, you know, no. and, and it's just cause we, we were humans and we, we realized that and we all have our own stories. Going back to what you had previously said about how many of uh, people that are in the U S that are undocumented came here legally and overstayed, maybe then the challenge that we give our viewers who um, maybe viewers? have... Viewers? 
listeners. Casey still thinks that we have a YouTube channel. I do. There are no cameras <laughs> I on. It. I want it so bad. Um, our listeners um, is to maybe start by helping um, walk with some families who are in that immigration process so that they can successfully transition to that, that green card or that citizenship state, because that is a, that is a rough road. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, especially from interacting with the in- international Institute that a lot of times they have like three months of support when they get here yep, and they have it. to be on their feet. Yep. Three um, months of very little financial support. And then they're completely on their own. It is such a a chaotic process to get through to a green card or to citizenship. I think you're right that um, walking next to a family that or with a family that is is moving through that process is a really good way to to um, engage with it on a personal level. Um, you know, and I I do think the the law exists um, as a sort of a codification of our values. Um, laws change um, and laws flex and they grow um, and and we as a as a country have you know there are things that the founding fathers said there are things that we as communities have grown into. They were not evangelical Christians when they started the United States. Can we go Correct. there? Um, just let's just one more time throw that out there. They were not clear. evangelical <laughs> Christians, um, and uh, and that we are not an evangelical Christian country, mm-hmm. right? That is that's just not what the country of the United States is. Um, but how do we how do we find values that we agree on? How do we we're struggling right now to, to even agree on the same facts. And I think this is what's actually really the scariest thing to me about sort of our political discourse right now is even agreeing on the basic facts, but our values, like, can we get back to what are the values that we agree on? Um, and is it freedom or is it equality? Like those are very different things and they interact in very different ways. Um, and, and how do we, you know, think a little bit bigger about this process that we're in and how it affects us as human beings. I'm, um, you know, if you want to get into political philosophy at some point, we'll, we'll take that as another road, but, um, you know, it's, we, we continually redefine ourselves and our country because we are, we are humans. Um, our government is created out of human beings. It is as human as we are. Um, and so to, to try to process it and, you know, who has the power and who's got the access and who's got the resources. And then how does, how does that translate to us as people? Um, so maybe even when you're sitting around the the Christmas tree or, you know, your Christmas Eve dinner, um, talking about, you know, maybe just asking questions about that. Say, you know, what is it that you value about the U S what do you think is so special about us? And then, and then maybe transitioning to issues, but, but like, what is it, what is it that makes us us and do we share a perspective on that and how can we go from there so in wrapping up today's episode we first just want to say thank you to annie for being on the podcast and sharing um with our with our listeners you are a a wealth of knowledge and i really appreciate your voice yeah for sure i appreciate that and i have enjoyed being here and i will say that input was one of my top five strengths of our the strengths finder strengths quest from greenville college yeah i did do it twice i did do it for law school and for undergrad so um, input stayed on there yeah my number one was includer so hopefully you felt very included what are your other top four Oh goodness! I am, well, they changed. I can only remember the Greenville era ones. So from 2003, Annie was input, positivity, maximizer, woo, and belief. I was a woo. Ooh. Yeah, I was, was a, a woo. woo. Yep. I need to yep. take it. I'm, maybe I'll do it tonight. 
I cost money, but we can. It's okay. We could. We got it. Come on, John. Um, I'm going to do it. I like the free personality tests. Those are fun. Yeah, but they're never as good. Anyway. Anyway. Andy, yeah. Thank you for being on. Thank I you learned so a lot much. today. Hopefully <laughs> uh, you've enjoyed it and maybe you'd come back sometime for exactly. another episode. We have a lot of things to talk about. We do. Yeah, for sure. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for listening this week. If you enjoyed listening, please um, share this podcast with a friend. You can screenshot yourself listening to it and put it on Instagram, maybe in your story and tag us at turning pod. And we will um, tag you back and we'll put it in our story as well. So then, you know, our 74 uh, followers are going to make you really popular. Let's get to 75 this <laughs> Let's week. Let's get to 75. Uh, we'll get there. I know and we will. he's following us right now. I was going to say, I, I might be number 75 because oh I just we'll hit follow. Check. That's so exciting. So yes, if you have not rated, reviewed, um, and subscribed to the podcast, please do so. Make sure that you follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Let's continue the conversation there. And until next time, go in peace.